Kate's mother and Annie's father fell in love and married. Because the dance floor is filled with snakes and all the people left. He was the king of pebbles. He was the king of paper dolls, tin soldiers, pin cushions, small kindnesses, pet names, corks and buttons. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, tall tales, fairy tales, folk tales, and more, to warm your heart, lift your spirit, and give flight to your imagination. I'm Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me every time you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. It's going to be a great hour today. We're going to hear from Mary Hamilton, a story called Kate Cracker Nuts that you're going to enjoy. And uh, you're going to hear from the tall tale teller Bill Lepp with a story called The King of Little Things, a terrific tale from a terrific teller. It's a story that was inspired by Bill's playing with his son, playing with toys together with his son when his son was a little boy. You're going to enjoy that story as well. But we're going to begin with a story about promises. You know, we've all promised things and had promises made to us that provide a lot of storytelling material in real life and, of course, in the storytelling world, too. We've seen cowboy movies where a simple handshake is enough to seal an agreement in stone. We've seen spy films filled with empty promises and betrayals and treachery and promises made and promises broken are at the heart of a lot of our favorite stories. And uh, to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey, Sam. It's good to be here. And we're going to listen to a Dan Kedding story today, right? Tell us about the banjo player of Franceville. Yeah, so something central to this story is a promise. <laughs> and, I mean, it's kind of a cautionary tale along, like, the same kind of plot as the Pied Piper, if <laughs> you've ever heard that story. Sure, yeah. Pied Piper, of course, the story about the piper who comes to town and gets rid of all the rats, yep. right? But then when the town refuses to pay him, he leads all the children away from town, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. But in this story, there's no rats. There's actually rattlesnakes. Oh, gosh. And there's so many of them that the town is just to the point where they can't even go outside anymore because there's just too many snakes. It's too dangerous. And uh, um, as I was listening to the story, uh, and I talk, I actually talked to my wife a little bit about it. Yeah. And she, she brought up a memory of when someone more or less broke a promise to her. Her name's Kate, um, for reference. But she, she was talking about when she was younger, she really wanted a cat. I don't like most kids. They want a pet at some point. <laughs> And her mom wasn't as thrilled about the idea as she was. And um, so she, her mom, thinking she was clever, um, said that if she could keep her room clean for a whole month, um, she would get this cat, which would have been a miracle as, from what I've heard. <laughs> sure, <yeah>. <laughs> but uh, eventually she actually, she was determined. She, she pulled it off. She, got the, her, she kept her room clean the whole month. She was ready to get her cat. And as they were driving to the pet store to pick up this cat, her mom said, would you rather have a cat or a Nintendo DS? <laughs> and uh, she, she, of course, chose the DS. <laughs> and so, I mean, maybe not a promise broken, but... A promise altered. Yeah, exactly. Kind of a pro-parenting move. <laughs> yeah, right. If you think about it. Boy, no kidding. You know, I my son, my oldest son, when he was a tiny... I'm, almost as soon as he could talk, mm -hmm. he started asking for a dog. 
And, oh, you know, back then, you think that when you say, we'll get you a dog when you're five, mm-hmm. we, you, you think that's just like putting it off forever. You yeah. Know? But it seems like the next day they turn five. Yeah. You know? And they and don't so forget either. They don't forget. No way. So we, we, we got them a dog for sure. But yeah, but promises are... Promises are the stuff of interesting stories, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. And this story is no different. <laughs> Dan Kedding, of course, the Chicago area storyteller who tells stories from all over the world. A lot of them are stories that he learned from his Croatian grandmother. This is the banjo player of Franceville, and we're happy to bring it to you here on the Appleseed. It happened a long time ago in the town of Franceville in West Virginia. Franceville is a town not much different than your town. The people there are farmers and shopkeepers. At one time, they'd been miners. Some say the town was built over those old abandoned mine shafts. But unlike your town, Franceville had a problem. Franceville had snakes. And they were everywhere. If a mother wanted to bring a canister of flour down from a shelf, she'd find a snake coiled around it. If a father pulled the blankets back so his son or daughter could get in bed at night, there'd be a big old snake snuggled up in the covers. When the children went to school and they pulled their books out of their desks, sitting right on top of the books was a big old snake. Some folks said you couldn't sleep at night because the hissing of snakes in the night was that loud. Well, the mayor decided to have a dance, kind of take people's mind off the problem. One of those itinerant banjo players was going from town to town. You know the kind. They'd come to your town. They'd play for a dance, get enough money so they could get to the next town. He asked that man if he would call a dance and play for it, and the man said, sure. But the dance never started because the people couldn't get on the dance floor because the dance floor was filled with snakes. And all the people left. And the banjo player, he just sat there. For you see, they never passed the hat for him. And he had no money. He had no place to go. Every day, he'd sit in front of the general store playing his banjo, hoping that someone would throw a few pennies, maybe a quarter, into his case. But the adults were so worried about the snakes, they just passed him by, doom and gloom all over their brow. But the kids, they loved him. He'd sing songs, tell him stories, made him feel good. Times are hard at home. There are plenty of harsh words. Those kids, they liked it when he sang for them. Made them feel good. Well, finally, people started talking about moving. So the mayor went to the local preacher and said, What can you do for us? The preacher, he went to the town square and called down the name of the Lord. But those snakes just poked their heads out of their holes and they hissed at him. A soldier came back from the war with his musket. Oh, he was a good shot. He started shooting those snakes, but every time he shot one, ten more came to the funeral, and pretty soon there were even more snakes, and he gave up. Then someone said, let's flood the mines underneath the town. Maybe that'll get rid of them. Oh, they did. They flooded those mines, and even more snakes came up. And now there was no more talk of moving. Now folks are packing their bags. And the mayor and the city council got an idea. They put up a reward, ten gold dollars, for the man, woman, or child that would rid Franceville of its snakes. They posted it right outside the general store. The folks came and they read it, and they just shook their heads. And they said, if the preacher can't do it, 
and the soldier can't do it, and the floods can't do it. How can we do it? They all walked away, everyone but the banjo player. And he looked at that and he said, ten gold dollars. That's more money than I make in a year. And he went to the mayor's office and said, is that true? You'll give me ten gold dollars if I can get rid of those snakes? I will, said the mayor. You have my word on it. And the banjo player said, can I have your hand on it? Now up in the mountains of West Virginia, giving your words one thing, but if you shake on it, you've made a promise that you dare not break. The mayor looked down at that hand extended out towards him. He was a very tight man, the mayor. He thought of those ten gold dollars, but then he thought of the snakes, and he grabbed the banjo player's hand and said, You got my hand on it. The banjo player said, I'll see what I can do. And he walked out of the office. The mayor turned to the city council members and said, I wonder what he's going to do. Maybe he'll hit him over the head with his banjo. And they all laughed. But then they heard a music, a music coming from the street. And they went over and they looked out the window, and there was the banjo player. They opened up the window and they could hear him playing. He was playing a nice old dance tune. And the people were coming out of their shops and out of their homes, standing on the sidewalk, tapping their feet, doing a little jig. And then they looked down the street. It looked like the whole street was moving. First you could see it, and then it was 50, 100, 500, 1,000 snakes all coming down the street towards the banjo player. And when they got right close to him, he turned and started walking. And all those snakes started following And the people laughing and singing and dancing followed the snakes. Now the town was built near a river. And the banjo player led them all right down to the banks of the river, right above the falls. And he stood there and just kept playing his banjo. And those snakes went right around him into the water. And the water boiled and roiled and churned with those snakes. And they all went over the waterfall. And when the last one had gone over, the banjo player stopped playing, turned to the mayor and said, I'd like my ten gold dollars now. And the mayor, who'd been smiling and laughing, suddenly stopped and frowned and said, Now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. I thought you were going to do something hard. We got banjo players and, and, and fiddle players, too, who could have played a song. Now, come on, all you did was play one song. That's not worth ten gold dollars. How about I give you two? That's the most you've ever gotten for playing just one song. The banjo player looked at him and said, Now, wait a minute. You gave me your hand. I want my ten gold dollars. I'll take nothing less. And the mayor said, Yes, you will. You'll take nothing at all, because that's what I'm going to give you. And laughing, he walked away, and the people followed him. And the banjo player turned to the townsfolk and said, Now, wait a minute, is this fair? I get rid of your snakes and I don't get paid? And the adults all laughed and jeered at him. But the kids, they were ashamed of what the adults were doing. They couldn't even look at him. They just put down their heads and walked. And the banjo player stopped him with a cord. And the mayor turned around, and the banjo player looked at him and said, You best be careful, Mr. Mayor. There's worse sounds than the hissing of snakes at night. But the mayor just shook his head and frowned and walked on back to town with the rest of the folk. And when he got back to his office, 
He passed out some cigars to the city council. They put their feet up on their desks, and they laughed and talked about how they got rid of those snakes, and it didn't cost them one red cent. And that's when they heard it. Music. Music coming from the street. They walked over, and they opened the window, and there was a banjo player, head bowed, standing in the middle of the street. He was playing a song, but it was like no song they'd ever heard before. This song had a taste to it. It tasted like, like fresh lemonade on a hot summer day. It tasted like homemade ice cream. Song had a taste. Song had a smell to it. Smell like new cut grass. Smell like lilac bushes in early summer. Song had a smell. This song had a feel. It felt like grass in between your toes. It felt like the cool, cool water, your favorite swimming hole, just caressing your skin. This song had a taste and a smell and a feel. It was the taste and smell and feel of summer for a kid. And the mayor and the city council just stood there, remembering what it was like to be young. And they tried moving towards the street, but their feet had grown roots, and they couldn't move at all. And the mayor looked up and down the street, and all the adults were standing there rooted to the ground like statues. And then he watched in horror as the doors to the school opened, and all the children, every single one, came running and dancing and singing into the street. And they ran straight to the banjo player, laughing and singing. And little children crawled out past their parents. And the older kids picked them up and took them to the banjo player. And when the very last child was there, the banjo player turned and started to walk towards the woods on the other side of town. And all the children, skipping and laughing and dancing and singing, followed him. And when he got right next to the mayor's window, he looked up, looked in the mayor's eyes and said, Remember what I said, Mr. Mayor. There's a worse sound and the hissing of snakes at night. The banjo player walked into the woods and all the children with him. About an hour later, the adults could move again and they ran into the woods searching for their children, mothers and fathers, grandparents, uncles and aunts. But they never saw them again. They never found them. They could hear them behind that bush laughing over that rye singing. They never saw them again. Some searched for a day, some for a week, some for a month. Some never gave up. But they never saw them. And if you go to Franceville, West Virginia today, there's an old mayor who sits behind his desk. And late at night he weeps. For he realizes there is a worse sound than the hissing of snakes. It's the sound of silence in a town without the laughter of children. Dan Kedding with the story of the banjo player of Franceville. Trent, as you said, that's a lot like the Pied Piper of Hamlet. Yeah, right? yeah. it is. Very similar. Yeah, and it's a cautionary tale, of course. You know, you keep your promises is the mm-hmm. is the message there, isn't it? Definitely. It's a little heartbreaking, but, I mean, it serves a, a good lesson. Yeah, and it's a good thing it's just a story, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody who hears a story like that can walk away from it 
resolved to keep his or her promises. For sure, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good resolve. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Ketting is such a wonderful storyteller. He's also kind of a wonderful guy. You know, we talked to Dan on the Appleseed some time ago, and he, he, he talked about performing with other storytellers on stage. You mm-hmm. know, uh, a lot of the time when you see uh, storytellers performing on stage, often they're performing in, in company with other storytellers, and they take turns telling. And Dan talked uh, in a pretty compelling way about the storyteller's responsibility to prepare the audience for the next storyteller, right? Mm-hmm. To leave the next storyteller a good, clean platform, you know, where where yeah. where that storyteller can engage with an audience. And uh, Dan really recognizes storytelling as a community kind of activity, right? Yeah. It's a pleasure to hear a Dan Kedding story, and there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Pleasure to be here. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. I'm so pleased that you're with us here on The Appleseed today. If you're just joining us, we just heard a story from Dan Kedding, a story called The Banjo Player of Franceville. And, of course, Dan is a a favorite of ours. He uh, learned a lot of traditional tales from his Croatian grandmother, and he shares those tales as well as other tales from all over the world and his own original tales, some of them personal tales about growing up in Chicago. It's always a pleasure to hear from Dan. And that story, of course, was a twist on the traditional tale of the Pied Piper, in which a small town is riddled with snakes. The banjo player of Franceville takes care of the problem, but of course other problems ensue when a promise is broken. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. We're going to hear from Mary Hamilton with a story called Kate Cracker Nuts, and we're going to hear from Bill Lepp with a terrific tale called The King of Little Things. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the things that we see on screen, through stories passed along, telling to telling, around the living room or the kitchen table or the campfire, through great books that we read, and of course, through terrific music that we interact with. I'm joined in the studio by Mark Waite, sometime engineer for some of the great uh, recordings that you hear on the Appleseed of terrific storytellers. Mark Waite, it's great to have you in the studio with me. Hello, Sam. And we're going to talk about, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you visit. Uh, you you always bring with you the story of a song that has somehow been meaningful to you in your life. And you've got one of those today. Well, sometimes music that you love just happens to have been playing in a traumatic moment. Hmm. And so it becomes tied to it. So should I dislike that song now because I now associate it with a moment of trauma? <laughs> my dad paid, even though my dad wasn't wealthy, uh, he was just a teacher. He, I don't know how much he paid, but it was too much to get me to come to a five-week drama camp wow. at Brigham Young University. And uh, when I walked in the dorms that first day, there were these two punks on skateboards sitting there in the lobby and you never know who's going to be your friend and who's not going to be your friend. Yeah. 
it, they have to, it has to happen organically. But these two guys became my friends, Dave and Del Rey. Mm. And uh, to the point that even after the five weeks, they invited me up to Rexburg to go come hang out with them. And so I drove <laughs> my car, you know, as a 17, 18-year-old up to Rexburg. And, um, this is a... a uh, a drama camp for n- not for college students. This no, is, this was for high school a, students. A high school student. Yeah, I was a high school yeah. student at the time, and so I went up and I hung out with them at their high school for a day. I'm sure their teachers were not thrilled with that. <laughs> you can't get away with that now. But then uh, we went out to Idaho Falls from Rexburg. We went to the big city. Yeah of IF to go to their favorite <laughs> drive-in diner. Wait a minute. Idaho listeners, you, you really refer to Idaho Falls as IF? Oh, yeah. We, they did. We want to hear from you. IF. Um, so he he lets, they both got girlfriends. I'm on my own. They've both got girlfriends. And they let, so they let me drive uh, Delray's dad's new Mercury Cougar. Mm. Nice, rich, dark blue paints with the uh, the the tan landau top and the matching interior i know the car and uh, so i'm driving them and we get to idaho falls and we stop we don't go to eat at big boy bob's big boy yeah. we only stop there so that i can grab the comic book Bob's oh. Big Boy always had oh, a gosh. comic book. I, oh, wow. I remember the you, Bob's you know Big those? Boy comic books. Oh, my gosh. I haven't thought of those in 30 years. Okay. Well, as then, then, then we took that comic book to their favorite drive-in. Yeah. And I parked. And as they were uh, necking in the back with their girlfriends, I was doing dramatic readings from the Bob's Big Boy comic book. Man, you and your an, life, Mark. And over the top. Ultra dramatic reading of Bob's Big Boy and his comic book and Bob's Adventures, just to serenade them as they were necking with their girlfriends in of the back course. seat. Yeah. So, and then it's time to go, and oh, I guess I guess I should have gotten to the music at this point by now. Electric light orchestras, um, turn to stone. Yeah. Turn to stone. I'm going. You know. Time to go. I'm still in the driver's seat. And you know those concrete barriers they put in oh, front of no. parking spots? Oh, golly. Yeah. Okay, I'm parked up against one of those, but I don't realize it. And there's nobody parked in front of me. Yeah. So why would I back out on this boat when I could just pull forward? So I put it into gear. Turn to Stone is playing from Electric Light Orchestra. And I start driving forward. Yep. Famous. The underbelly of yeah. the engine. <laughs> Is now scraped. <laughs> Delray didn't freak out. Yeah. He was upset. This is his dad's new cougar. Yeah. And I'm horrified. I'm terrified. I have turned to stone myself. <laughs> I'm petrified. With yeah, that's, that's when you wonder if you're ever going to make it back home. I, I don't cause accidents. Yeah. Other people have crashed into me. I don't crash into other things. Yeah. I'm a good driver. And uh, we look under there. There's no significant damage. There's no fluids dripping at least <laughs> but so i easily back it off they kind of lift it from the front as i back off the uh, the concrete barrier and i'm way more careful about is there a con i just to this day i pull into a parking spot and i thought wait a minute is there a concrete barrier at the front of this spot 
Really? Every time to I hear day, you still Turn check. to Stone, oh. you know, Electric Light Orchestra, <laughs> and now I've got to turn to Stone. What is there a big stone thing in front of me, in front of my car yeah, right now? Yeah, there's no escaping. Once that once that trigger is in your head, once that song it, it once it's connected to something like that, that's always where you go. And yet I still love the song, <laughs> even though it's tied to a traumatic event. I'd never heard from him again. I think may, I don't know if he even told his dad or not. He was a good kid. He probably did tell his dad. And yeah, I don't yeah. think there was any damage, but oh, the horror. The horror, the concrete barrier. <laughs> There's a. I, I lived in a town for a while that was adjacent to an enormous ravine. This just you know, a couple of hundred feet down, and and there was a famous story in town of a of a family that had driven the same old car for a long time, and then they had finally bought a new car. They had an old truck, and they finally bought a new car. And the kid said to his dad, "Can I can I take the new car out on a date tonight?" And the dad said yes, and the kid got ready for the date, and he went out, and he started the car. And then I don't like where this is going. He remembered something he had to get inside or something like that, and the car running, the engine running, went into the ravine. Oh, and wow. he had to go tell his dad about that, and he said, Dad, I, the, I, I, I just, the car's in the ravine. And the dad looked at his son, and there were moments of silence between them, and then he said, well, then you'll have to take the truck. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a pleasure to have you, Mark. Thanks for joining us on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. If you're just joining us, you heard a story from Mark Waite, a memory of uh, an ELO song, Turned to Stone. And, of course, the place it holds in a kind of a painful automotive experience for Mark. You know, songs can be the keys that unlock memories for us that make great stories. And it's always a pleasure to chat with Mark. We've got a story now from Mary Hamilton, a princess story of sorts called Kate Cracker nuts about sisters who learn to be loyal even when everything turns against them. Mary Hamilton, the storyteller, uh, came to storytelling in kind of an interesting way. Instead of being rewarded or applauded for her skill as a storyteller as a little girl, she was sent to a priest. She was in third grade, she says, when she told a story about a ridiculous horse ride, and the teacher knew it was a false tale and sent her to be punished for telling lies. Well, that was the beginning of a long and storied career. See what I did there? And uh, here's a story, Kate Crackernuts, told for you by Mary Hamilton, here on The Appleseed. The day of Princess Kate's birth marked the beginning of four years of happiness for Kate and her mother and father. But when Princess Kate was five years old, oh, her daddy died. For the next three years, Kate missed her daddy so. She followed the men of the kingdom. From the horsemen, she learned how to ride. From the woodsmen, she learned how to walk in the forest and never get lost. From the gardeners, she learned which berries and plants were safe to eat and which were not. Kate grew so sturdy and so strong, she could crack nuts open with her bare hands. 
So everyone in her kingdom began calling her Kate Crackernuts. In a nearby kingdom, there lived a princess named Annie, whose life was almost exactly like Kate's. For four years, Annie and her mother and father lived happily. But when Princess Annie was five years old, her mama died. For the next three years, Annie missed her mama so much, she watched the women of the palace. Annie watched them sew, she watched them embroider, and she watched them dance. Annie hoped she could learn to create such beauty with thread and move with such grace and elegance, even without a mama to teach her. When Princess Kate and Princess Annie were eight years old, Kate's mother and Annie's father fell in love and married. Kate Crackernuts and Annie became stepsisters. Stepsisters joined by marriage, and those two, oh, those two girls quickly learned to love each other more than most sisters joined by blood. Time passed. When Kate's mother decided it was time to teach Kate the womanly arts of sewing, embroidery, and dancing, she thought she may as well teach Annie, too. Annie loved the lessons. Between lessons, Annie practiced her growing skills. Kate suffered through the lessons. When each lesson ended, she hurried outside to walk in the woods. Kate, her mother scolded, Kate, you are a princess. Without skills, without womanly arts, Kate, womanly arts, you'll never find a husband. No prince wants to marry a princess who cannot sew, embroider, and dance. Kate, work on these arts, Kate. Oh, Mama, I won't marry a prince who cares about sewing, embroidery, and dancing. I'll marry a prince who wants to walk in the woods, never get lost, and never feel hungry. Kate's mother thought, no such prince exists. More time passed. Kate and Annie grew old enough to attend dances. Whenever the two sisters arrived at a ball, all the young men flocked around Annie. Promise me a dance, Annie. Save a dance for me, Annie. Annie, may I have a dance with you? Not until Annie had the name of a prince written beside every dance on her dance card did the young men turn their attention to Kate. Oh, Kate didn't care. She enjoyed watching the young men hover around Annie because Kate knew, Kate knew how much Annie loved dancing. Kate's mother watched, and Kate's mother worried. How will my Kate ever find a husband with Annie so beautiful and so graceful? Oh, Kate simply does not have a chance. Annie is much too beautiful. Perhaps 
I could arrange a spell to destroy Annie's beauty. One day, Kate's mother went to see the henwife, a woman known for creating spells, and she arranged a spell to destroy Annie's beauty. The next morning, Kate's mother said, Annie, go see the henwife for me. She's promised me something. I'll go right after breakfast. No, Annie, go now. It's very important. As Annie walked through the palace, she stopped at the pantry and grabbed a crust of bread to eat on her way. When she reached the henwife's home, the henwife said, Good morning, Annie. Oh, come in. See what's in this pot. Annie lifted the lid of the pot. Nothing happened. Annie, have you eaten this morning? When the henwife learned about the crust of bread, she said, Take this advice to your stepmother. Keep your pantry better locked. Annie took the advice home. The next morning, Kate's mother walked Annie all the way to the door of the palace. Hurry to the henwife's for me, Annie. As Annie walked to the henwife's, she saw gardeners picking peas. She stopped and talked with them. They offered her fresh peas to eat, and she ate them. When she lifted the pot lid at the henwife's house, again nothing happened. When the henwife learned about the peas, she said, Take this advice to your stepmother. The pot won't boil when the fire's away. Annie took the advice home. She said to tell you the pot won't boil when the fire's away. When Kate's mother heard this, she knew she needed to go with Annie. The next morning, Kate's mother said, Annie, dear, come to the henwife's with me. This time, when Annie lifted the lid of the pot, a sheep's head rose into the air, flew over to Annie, and pushed itself down over her beautiful head, covering it completely. Annie tried to pull the sheep's head off, but it was stuck fast to her shoulders. She tried to call for help, but all she could say was, Bah! Bah! Oh, Annie, let's go home. When they neared the palace, Kate's mother called, Kate! Kate! Come see what happened to Annie! Kate ran from the palace, and when she saw Annie... Annie! Oh, Annie! What happened? Annie's frightened eyes peered from the eye sockets of the sheep, but all she could say was, Bah! Bah! Oh, Kate, isn't it wonderful? Now all the young men will pay attention to you. You'll have your pick of princes. I can't imagine there's a prince in all the world who will want to marry a young woman with a sheep's head. Mama? Mama, you, you caused this? I did it for you, Kate. I did it for you, Kate. Isn't it wonderful? Oh, Mama? No! No! Kate ran into the palace. Soon she returned carrying traveling cloaks and a fine linen cloth. 
Gently, she wrapped the cloth around Annie's head. Kate made sure Annie could see and breathe easily, yet no one would be able to see the horrible sheep's head. Then Kate took Annie by the hand, turned away from her home, and walked toward the woods. Kate, what are you doing? Where do you think you're going? I'm your mother, Kate. Come back here. Tears streamed down Kate's cheeks, but she held fast to Annie's hand. Kate, come back here, Kate. You needed my help, Kate. You'll see. You needed my help. Kate kept crying, and Kate kept walking. For days, Kate and Annie traveled through the forest, but they were never hungry. At night, they slept side by side, bundled in their traveling cloaks. One day, they walked out of the forest and into another kingdom. Now, in this kingdom, the king and queen had two sons. One prince was said to be handsome and healthy. The other prince lay sick and dying, and no one knew the cause or the cure. The king had said, Anyone who spends the night with my sick son will receive a pound of silver. Many had tried to spend the night with the prince, but all who tried were never heard from again. A pound of silver, thought Kate. Annie and I will need money. I must try. So Kate and Annie went to see the king. I'll spend the night with your sick son in exchange for the pound of silver and a safe place for my sick sister to rest. The king agreed. He took Annie to a fine room, and then he led Kate to his son's room. The prince slept in his bed. Kate watched and waited. Night came. Nothing happened. But when midnight arrived... The prince opened his eyes, climbed out of bed, and walked past Kate as if he could not even see her. Kate followed him from the palace and out to the stable. The prince saddled his horse. When he mounted his horse, Kate Crackernuts jumped up behind him, and they rode away into the forest. As they rode by trees, Kate grabbed nuts and dropped them in her apron. They rode and they rode. At last, the prince stopped in front of a green hill and called, Open green hill! Admit the prince and his horse! And in a voice Kate hoped sounded like the prince, she added, And his lady! And the green hill opened. Kate and the prince rode inside the hill and into another world. In this world... They rode on a broad path, edged by trees so tall Kate could not even see the tops of them. They rode and they rode and they rode, and they stopped in front of a magnificent house. Kate Crackernut slid off the horse and hid in the nearby bushes just as the door of the house opened. The fairies ran out. Oh, it's our prince, our dancing partner. 
The fairies dragged the prince from his horse and pulled him into the house. Kate slipped into the house behind them, taking care to hide in the shadows. Kate watched as the fairies danced with the prince. They danced and danced and danced with him. They would not let him eat. They would not let him drink. They made him dance and dance. Only when a cock crowed the coming morning did the fairies let him go. The prince stumbled outside and struggled onto his horse. Kate slipped out and jumped up behind him. Back they rode to the palace, where the prince fell into his bed. When the king arrived to check on his son, he found his son asleep in bed, and Kate Crackernut sitting in front of the fire, cracking nuts open with her bare hands. I've learned what ails the prince, but I don't know how to cure him. I will spend another night with him for a pound of gold. The king agreed. That night, Kate didn't watch the prince dance. Instead, she crept in the shadows listening to the fairies. And this is what she heard. Any news from the palace? Oh, Sheep's Head Annie is visiting. Oh, what a wonderful spell that one is. Ugly, ugly, ugly. Oh, yes, it's effective, but simple. Why, three strokes of any wand, even the one the baby's playing with, would break that spell. Kate thought, where's the baby? That wand is mine. Kate crept in the shadows until she found a fairy baby playing with a wand. She took nuts from her apron, and one by one she rolled the nuts past the baby. The fairy baby acted just like any human baby. The baby watched nut after nut roll by. Then the baby laughed, dropped the wand, and crawled off after the nuts. Kate snatched the wand, hid it in her apron, then slipped out to await the prince. When she returned to the palace, Kate hurried to Annie's room. Three times she stroked the sheep's head with the wand. The sheep's head disappeared, and Annie was beautiful again. Oh, Annie, said Kate, and the two sisters hugged each other. Now, Annie, Kate said, I understand there is a handsome, healthy prince living in this palace. Why don't you see if you can meet him? I'm off to make another bargain with the king. When the king came to his son's room... Kate was waiting for him. I still don't know how to cure him, but I'll spend another night with him if I may marry him. The king agreed. That night, Kate again crept in the shadows and listened to the fairies talk. Oh, just think, three more nights of dancing and the prince will be ours. Oh, that's right, he'll never return to the palace and no one will know what happened to him. <laughs> he'll be our dancing partner forever and ever. Oh, it's a complicated, time-consuming spell, but it's nearly complete. <laughs> oh, the only way to interrupt it now would be to feed the prince a stew made from the yellow birdie the baby's playing with. Kate thought, where's that baby?
She crept in the shadows until she found the baby with the birdie. Again she rolled nut after nut. Finally, the baby laughed, let go of the birdie, and crawled after the nuts. Kate snatched the yellow birdie, hid it in her apron, and slipped out to await the prince. When they returned to the palace, the prince fell into his bed. Kate wrung the yellow bird's neck, plucked off all its feathers, dropped it into a pot of water, and began cooking yellow bird stew. The aroma from the cooking pot drifted over to the sleeping prince. He opened his eyes. Oh, oh, what is that wonderful smell? A yellow birdie stew, said Kate, and she filled a bowl with stew and carried it to his bed. Gently, Kate lifted the head of the prince and spooned yellow bird stew into his mouth. Mmm, more, said the prince, and he propped himself up on his elbows. Kate fed him more. More, please, said the prince, and he sat up in his bed. Kate fed him more. More, please, he said, and he stood up. Kate Crackernuts handed him the entire bowl. When the king came to check on his son, he found Kate Crackernuts sitting in front of the fire, cracking nuts open with her bare hands. Beside her sat the prince, helping himself to yellow birdie stew, laughing, talking, and falling in love with Kate Crackernuts. Now Kate had been absolutely right about the other prince. When Annie saw him, oh, she fell in love with him, and of course, when he saw how beautiful she was, he fell in love with her. In time, a grand double wedding was held. After the wedding ceremony, celebrations lasted for days and days. Annie and her prince attended every celebration and danced every dance. Kate and her prince attended every celebration and danced the first dance at each one, just to be polite. Then they slipped away for walks in the woods. Kate's prince never did like dancing. Well, he had no idea why he did not like dancing. He just knew... I don't enjoy dancing. But he loved walking in the woods, never getting lost, and never feeling hungry because he walked beside his beloved Kate Crackernuts. Kate Crackernuts, a story told for you by Mary Hamilton. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. And we're going to wrap up today with a story from the great tall tale teller Bill Lepp. This one is a story about two kings. One, a mighty king, ruler over all of the large things in the world. The other king, the ruler of the little things. This is Bill Lepp with a story that became a wonderful picture book. We're happy to bring you this performance of the King of Little Things, here on The Appleseed. Once there was a king. He was the king of little things. He was the king of keys, crumbs, copper coins, and condensation. 
He was the king of nails, noodles, nods, knots, needles, beetles, and baby rattles. He was the king of pebbles. He was the king of paper dolls, tin soldiers, pin cushions, small kindnesses, pet names, corks, and buttons of all shapes and sizes. He was also the king of the alphabet and of anachronisms. There were other kings, bigger kings, all around the king of little things. They controlled big kingdoms with big castles. Banquets were thrown every Friday for the big kings and for the big kings. The bigger kings had aspirations. The kings of cities hankered to be kings of counties. The kings of counties longed to be kings of countries. And the kings of countries yearned to be kings of continents. The king of little things had a small house and a few friends over on the weekends. The king of little things always remembered the queen's birthday and tried to remember to write his mother once a week. The big kings made their subjects pay for everything, for firewood, for food, for friendship, and for freedom. The king of little things gave anything to anyone who asked politely. He fed the birds, left crumbs on the table for the ants, and planted flowers for the bees. One day, one of the big kings decided to take over the world. He ordered his big generals to raise a big army. The big king raided and routed the kings of all the cities. He besieged and bested the kings of all the counties, and he battled and beat the kings of all the countries. Soon, the big king believed he had conquered every creature on every continent. The big king instructed his tailors to sew him a big, beautiful suit. The suit had many big brass buttons. He then had a splendorous crown crafted for himself, and the crown was covered with big gems. Now, proclaimed the king of big things, I am the biggest and onlyest king. I alone rule the world. A servant raised his hand. The servant said, I beg your pardon, O biggest king of the biggest empire ever created on this big, wide, and humongous world. You are the king of the mountains. You are the king of the seas. You are the king of the whales and the king of the pachyderms. But, my large sire, you have overlooked one small kingdom. What? How? Where? Which kingdom? Who is this king that I have not yet quashed in my quest? asked the big king. My lord, said the servant, bowing low to the floor, you have overlooked his minuscule majesty, the king of little things. Hmm, growled the big king darkly. Overlooked someone, have I? Amass my armies, he said to his generals, waving his big arm in the air. I shall lead the largest army in this big, big world to conquer this king of little things. And so it was that the big king and his army surrounded the humble house of the king of little things. Seeing the big king's army, the king of little things chuckled and called on his small but loyal subjects. He asked his minute friends to invade the big king's camp and do their little things. The little things loved their king. They slipped silently into the big king's camp. When the big king's army awoke in the morning, the soldiers could not attack. They awoke itching. Mosquitoes had bitten the soldiers. Chiggers had crawled under their armor. Athletes' foot fungus had crept into their shoes and between their toes. The cooks found nothing to cook. Weevils had eaten all the bread. Flies were in the fruit. Worms were in the meat. The weapons crews could not fire. Termites had eaten all the cannon's wheels and all the catapults. Spear handles, bows, and arrow shafts lay in great heaps of sawdust all over the ground. So the big king requisitioned steel catapults. He had steel spear shafts crafted. He brought up steel wagons with steel wheels. The king of little things saw all that steel. He shook his head and he smiled. The king of little things called on his friends, Rust and Dew. He asked Rust to ride on Dew to infiltrate the big king's camp. 
rust and dew rode noiselessly into the big king's camp just before the dawn. Again, the big king's soldiers awoke to a mess. Their wagons wouldn't budge because of the rust on the wheels. The cannons wouldn't roll because of the rust on the axles. The soldiers' armor was rusted through, and the catapults were about as dangerous as cantaloupes. The big king said angrily to his advisors, I cannot defeat this king through force. He employs the insignificant to create chaos. He controls all the little things. I will have to trick him. I will have to cheat him. In fact, I will lie. After all, a lie, no matter how small, is never a little thing. Invite the king of little things to my headquarters under a flag of truce. Tell him that we shall discuss the situation of the siege. The king of little things received the big king's message. The king of little things did not trust the big king, but he went to see him anyway. The king of little things knew his subjects would come to his aid if need be. As soon as the king of little things entered the big king's headquarters, the buttons on the big king's clothes recognized the king of little things, and they promptly fell to the floor. Then the big king's pants fell down. And so it was that the big king stood in his underwear before the king of little things. Trying to hold up both his pants and his pride, the big king shouted, Take him to my castle and lock that king in the dungeon. But the keys in the jailer's hands recognized the king of little things. They were, after all, little things, and they were loyal to the king of little things. And so the keys refused to unlock the cell door. When the nails in the door saw the king of little things, they jumped out of the wood and bowed before their king. The big king was irate at the news that his own dungeon was loyal to the king of little things. So the big king had the king of little things thrown into a cave. Guards were placed at the entrance of the cave, and the big king ordered that the king of little things would not get any food or any water until he surrendered his kingdom. The king of little things wasn't worried. He sat in the cave, the ants brought him crumbs, the birds brought him seeds, the bees brought him honey. Raindrops dripped through the mountain cracks and into his mouth. For a while, the king of little things was okay, but he missed his queen and he missed his house. And after a few weeks of sitting in the cave, the king of little things had had enough. He sent word with the bees and the ants and the birds to all his subjects. He respectfully asked all of the little things everywhere to undo themselves. The little things loved their king, and so they responded. All over the world, small things began to happen. Spring sprung. Bolts bolted. Ticks and tocks left their clocks. Strings unstrung. Hangers unhung. Chairs folded. Tables toppled. Easels eased away. Quills quivered. Quilts quit. Cookies crumbled. Bread broke. Weights lifted. And words twisted. In the big king's castle, the coins rolled out of his coffers. The jewels jumped out of his crown. The fillings fell out of his teeth. His suspenders surrendered. His belt broke, and his pants just would not stay up. Everything, everywhere, stopped working, and everybody knew that it was the big king's fault because he had imprisoned the king of little things. The people of the world demanded that the king of little things be set free. The big king knew that he was in trouble, and so he put a few big things into a big wagon, including his big, big queen, and he fled. And the people presented the king of little things with the crown. The king of little things required very little of his people. He asked only that they feed the birds, leave crumbs for the ants, plant flowers for the bees, oil hinges regularly, tip generously, and say please and thank you. And everybody lived happily ever after, excepting, of course, the big king. 
He kept losing the buttons on his pants, could never find his keys, spectacles, wallet, razor, toothbrush, slippers, address book, handkerchief, matches, pocket knife, watch, and he just could not keep his pants up. Some say he may have even lost his way. King of Little Things, a story told for you by the great tall tale teller Bill Lepp. Bill tells us that uh, the story was inspired by playing with his son, playing with toys together. And his son said, I want to be king of such and such a thing and such and such a thing and such and such a thing. And Bill said, what can I be king of? Well, the answer was, you can be king of all the little things. And that's how the story was born. A pleasure to bring you that tale today, as well as stories from uh, Mary Hamilton and Dan Ketting. A pleasure to talk with Mark Waite about a musical memory. We invite you to join us at byuradio.org for mini episodes. We call them Appleseed Extras. Just one story, just a few minutes long, in case you only have a few minutes and you want to spend those few minutes with a great story. There are plenty there. You can find them at byuradio.org slash Appleseed, or of course, by Googling the Appleseed Podcast. Subscribe for something new just about every day from the Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. This hour was written by Trent Horton. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.